What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? What's stopping you? I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. What's stopping you? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion. We are very glad that you're with us today, this uh, Friday afternoon, here on EWTN. As you probably know, if you've been listening for a while, it's a program on a Catholic network for non-Catholics. So if you've got a question about the Catholic faith, this is the place to come to get that question of yours answered. Now, we're not going to be taking any calls today because we're doing a special edition of our program in just a moment here. I'll tell you all about it. Our producer, Charles Berry. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? I'm doing very well. So, uh, well, I should be polite and say, how are you doing? I'm doing decently. I'm glad to hear that. So, Here's what I was going to say. Uh, as you may know, that uh, when we're not doing live radio, uh, that call that number that you dial, 833-288-EWTN, also doubles as our listener comment line. So you can call that on the weekend. You can call it in the middle of the night, whenever you want, and uh, leave a question or two for us, and then we will try to answer it on a, on a future program like today. That's exactly what we're going to be doing today. We're going to lead off with a question from the listener comment line right now. Hi, Dr. Dave. My name is Krista out of Lillington, North Carolina. I am currently enrolled in the RCIA program, and um, I had a question about valid baptism. I saw on some media a person say that in order for a baptism to be valid, a point of contact has to be made three times after, so after in the name of the Father, a dunk, and then in the name of the Son, a dunk, and then in the name of the Holy Spirit, a dunk. Is that true? I had a full immersion baptism, but I was only dunked once. Um, yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. So, so you you just have to have water running over the scalp. You got to get water on the head. Now, the 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 normative pattern is the this the, the threefold pattern. But if uh-huh. you don't have the threefold, it doesn't mean you're not validly baptized. You have to have the baptismal formula. I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you got to have water on the head. Okay. And you have to have the proper intent. Very good. Thanks so much for your call. Here's a uh, email question now from Nick in Shorewood, Illinois. Good afternoon. Could the parable Jesus gave in Matthew 20, you know, the one about the workers in the vineyard receiving the same wages despite working different hours, could this be evidence that everyone in heaven receives equal reward? I find it fitting that Mary is the most exalted saint, but why is it necessary to believe there is a hierarchy among saints? Thanks, Nick in Shorewood, Illinois. Yeah, thanks, Nick. I appreciate the question. So uh, I, I don't think that the parable means that, and uh, Jesus does indicate that there is a reward for specific actions that we perform, and, and, our, and the punishments also are, are meted out hierarchically. Those that, you know, uh, uh, he, Christ distinguishes those that are beaten with many blows from those that are beaten with few blows, for example. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, uh, and the parable of the, uh, of the workers that the stewards that make good use of the master's uh, resources while he's away. Those that have, you know, one gets 10 cities, one gets 20 cities, et cetera, et cetera. So you, you can balance that parable with others that would indicate, no, there's a, there's a disparity of rewards in heaven. Um, I think the best way to understand the parable that you've mentioned 
has to do with the relationship of Jews to Gentiles in the Christian church, that there are those that were within the covenant family of God for generations and generations. Those would be the people who'd been there for a long time. And here come these interlopers, you know, who get in at the last minute before the coming of the kingdom of God, uh, Gentiles whose ancestry uh, does not go back to Abraham, uh, and yet they're still counted as members of God's covenant people. And obviously there were those in Jesus's own day that took offense at that idea. Uh, and Christ says, no, that's anybody that does the will of God can get in regardless of their ancestry or how long they've been on the program. Okay. Appreciate that. And uh, thank you so much for your email. Interesting question here from Chris in Houston. Dr. Anders and Tom, I am a lifelong Catholic who knows many people who have left Catholicism because they were tired of, quote, all the Catholic guilt. Now, (laughs) I know that humility is a virtue and we should avoid the sin of pride, but how does a Catholic on their faith journey strike a balance between giving themselves a little credit for the good things they do while avoiding the extremes of pride or self-criticism. Thanks, Chris in Houston. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So we need to distinguish between, the word guilt can mean more than one thing. We can talk about guilt as a, uh, as a kind of a, uh, an existential position with respect to some moral obligation that we failed to meet. And then a person can be guilty, like, you know, the way a court would find you guilty of a crime. Yeah. Uh, then we can talk about the, 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 the psychological, the emotional burden of guilt, which is the sense of self-loathing or shame or mm. whatever it might be, regret that people have for past misdeeds. Now, obviously, you can have one without the other. Uh, you, could, you could be an unrepentant criminal who's found guilty, who is objectively guilty of a crime and not feel bad about it at all. On the other hand, I've met plenty of people, I'm sure you have too, who feel absolutely terrible about nothing. Yeah. Right? And believe oh, yeah. themselves to be wretched individuals when, in fact, everyone else around them considers them to be exemplary people. Mm-hmm. Right? So mm-hmm. uh, there's nothing in the Catholic tradition uh, that I understand that would, that would suggest that anybody, anybody should feel that second kind of guilt. Right? Um, and and such, such emotions are not necessary to make an act of contrition. Uh, and in fact, sometimes can be counterproductive. Mm. So what's necessary for for repentance and reconciliation is contrition, which is very different. Contrition is not the same thing as feeling guilty. Contrition is is a rational assessment that I've done wrong, that I need to amend my life uh, and turn turn to a better way. And it, it need not be accompanied by the rending of garments and the beating of breasts and the tearing of hair and all that sort of mm, thing. Yeah. And in fact... In my experience, sometimes those emotions can actually impede a person's ability to change their life. You can, they can, people, people can become so obsessed with the emotional need to condemn themselves um, that they actually avoid uh, making the necessary changes. They they make a kind of cult out of their own self-loathing, uh, and uh, and which makes them utterly useless to themselves and the people around them. Mm. That that's not that's not contrition. That's not consistent with a life of virtue. Uh, and it's uh, and it can be quite harmful. Sure. Chris in Houston, thanks so much uh, for your email. We are uh, doing some emails today, but uh, the bulk of the program is going to be uh, calls from our listener comment line here on EWTN's Call to Communion. So uh, speaking of emails, if you'd like to send us an email that we can tackle on a future show, the address for that, ctc at EWTN.com. We're going to be back in just a moment with a lot more of these calls from our listener comment line and a few emails scattered in here and there. It is called a communion on this Friday afternoon here on EWTN. Stay with us. 
called a communion with Dr. David Andrews on this Friday afternoon here on EWTN Radio and not taking your calls today. Instead, we're going to be bringing you a number of calls that we've received during the overnight or weekend hours on the EWTN listener comment line, including this one. Hi, I'm Suzanne from St. Gabriel uh, Radio in Columbus, Ohio. And my question is, my son has uh, left the church and his he questions the fact that the Catholic Church as essentially making up its own rules and not going by the Bible. And his example was, in the beginning of Matthew, um, why do we call priests father? Because it says in there that you shall call no one father but your father in heaven. So that was his example, but he really does question the fact that the, the Catholic Church does not teach from the Bible, that it was mainly Bible, that they made up rules. I would like Dr. Anders to address that, please. Okay, great. Absolutely. I would love to talk about that. So there are really two different claims here. One of them is that the Catholic faith is invalid because we don't teach from the Bible, but instead make up our own rules. Um, And then the second claim is that calling priests father actually contravenes a biblical rule, which is call no man father. So, you know, in in any text, you have to understand how to interpret the text. Uh, uh, you know, if I um, uh, if I were to pick up uh, sneaking around Tom's house, if I found a love letter lying around that Tom wrote to Adrian, um, and I and it and I found in there and it said, uh, you know, dear Adrian, you are the most beautiful, wonderful woman in the entire world. I would know that he didn't mean that literally because my wife is the most beautiful, wonderful woman in the entire world. We right? may have to we may have to arm <laughs> wrestle over this. David. Right, exactly. Point being. These kinds of affirmations have to be read within a context, you know, sure. so that's my point, you know. Okay. A sort of thing, and if you don't know the context, you don't know how to take it, right? You don't know how to take it. Um, and, and that's true of any kind of literature. Mm. So when it comes to the biblical story, like when you find a text like this out of context, you have to ask, what is the context? What is Jesus actually talking about? Does he mean that every single use of the word Father is prescribed? Can I never refer to any human being as Father under any circumstance? Well, obviously not, obviously not, because the Gospels refer to Father Abraham. Um, uh, uh, in the Old Testament, we read passages like uh, 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 Elisha the prophet sees Elijah ascending to heaven, and he says, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Uh, St. Paul says to the Corinthian church, I have become your father. Uh, Timothy, he writes, Timothy, my son. So we, f- we find the use of word father used as a term of endearment for religious authorities and ancestors all through the Scriptures, uh, by those understood by the biblical narrative to be saints and exemplary characters. So clearly Jesus isn't indicating that you can never use the word Father. Um, uh, the, the Gospels talk about fathers. They, you know, the, a father brings his child for Jesus for healing. Well, there's the Gospel writer calling somebody Father, and the very narrative in which Jesus says, call no man Father. Is the Gospel writer himself contravening Jesus' terminology or his, his uh, admonitions? Obviously not. So what is the context? It's the same context in which Jesus says things like, don't let anyone call you teacher. Don't let anyone call you rabbi. Uh, you know, don't, don't stand on street corners and pray long prayers to be seen by men. If you do these kinds of things, you'll have received your reward in full. Obviously, it's an admonition about seeking titles and position in church or recognizing people because of such titles and position rather than because of the quality of their life, that sort of thing. Now, um, so there's not an absolute prohibition on the use of the term father, and we find uh, counterexamples all through Scripture. Now, let me deal with the, the general question of whether or not uh, the Catholic Church is invalid because we don't teach the Bible or we make up our own rules. Well, first of all, we absolutely do teach the Bible. 
Um, first yeah. of all, Catholic Church put the Bible together. The reason that your son has a copy of the Bible with the books in it that he has is because Catholic bishops and Catholic councils promulgated this particular list of biblical texts, declared them to be authoritative and, and uh, inspired, and handed them down as sacred scripture for the rest of the world to read. If we hadn't been for the Catholic Church, you wouldn't have a completed Bible. Um, the, the tradition of Catholic commentary and preaching upon scripture is 2,000 years old, and it is absolutely monstrously large. Right? All of our great doctors and theologians and popes and bishops have commented on the Scripture uh, you know, at, 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 at such length that you, all the libraries in the world could probably not hold the, the text that they had composed. Um, uh, in the Catholic Mass, you go to Mass, and the, the, the lion's share of the Mass consists in uh, uh, the recitation and reflection upon biblical texts. So I mean, the idea that Catholics don't teach the Bible is absolutely patently absurd. Um, now, to the charge that the Catholic Church has made up its own rules— Guilty as charged. Guilty as charged. Absolutely guilty as charged. Why do I say so? Well, because you can't have any association. You can have any institution of people organized in some kind of uh, coherent way without having principles of organization. Yeah. All right. And so we have something called canon law. And canon law says, well, hey, if you're going to say mass, you, you have to do it this way. And these people are authorized to do it. If you, know, if you have a, uh, a criminal action that needs to be brought against somebody in the church, you have to follow this procedure. I mean, you can't you can't do society without some kind of principle ordered to the common good. Sure. Those principles are not absolute. They're not, they're not inspired from heaven. They can change, but you have to have such principles. And every Protestant church I've ever been has them. Of course. I mean, I've been in a lot of Protestant churches. It doesn't matter what the polity. It could be Presbyterian, it could be Baptist, it could be Episcopal. Uh, you know, let's say you're a Baptist. Well, what are the rules? Well, things like, uh, the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the deacons make the executive decisions in the church. Right, and mm -hmm. they're and they're elected by popular vote, um, and uh, and and pastors can be voted in and out of office. I mean, uh -huh. th these are these are principles of Baptist polity. Nowhere in Scripture says to do it that way. They made them up, right? Sure. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, Presbyterians do something very similar. I mean, er every church has rules that they follow that are more or less derived from the Bible or some other source. And sometimes, you know, hey, we're going to have the Bible study on Wednesday night. What are you doing here on Thursday? I mean, that's a way of doing things that's derived entirely from uh, some kind of arbitrary convention n needed to have order in a particular culture. So yeah. and this is just a ridiculous claim. There you go. Thanks so much for your question. Call to communion on this Friday afternoon here on EWTN. Here's another call from our EWTN listener comment line. My name is Matt, and I'm calling from Covington, Louisiana. I have one question for Dr. Anders. In John's Gospel, it appears that Andrew was the one who called Peter to join the apostles, to join Jesus. But in Matthew's Gospel, it says that Jesus was walking past the fishing boat, and Jesus called them. I'd appreciate having Dr. Anders straighten that out for me. Thanks very much. God bless you all. Okay. Um, yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So you have... You have put your finger on a, an inconsistency in the biblical narrative between two books. This is not the only one. I mean, if you line the Gospels up side by side, you find uh, lots of divergences like this. Um, Catholics have offered a lot of theories for how you reconcile the biblical narratives. There is actually a genre of literature. You don't find it so much anymore, but you did in antiquity called a harmony of the Gospels. Really? Uh, Augustine wrote one, for example, hmm. uh, which is an attempt to, uh, to, well, to bring all of these, all of these uh, texts into harmony. Uh, sometimes in more modern, you won't find it 
called a harmony of the Gospels, but you will find like a life of our Lord. Fulton Sheen, for example, writes a biography, as it were, a life of Christ uh-huh. that, that will integrate uh, you know, the themes from different biblical narratives. So that, 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 that enterprise of reconciling these accounts is very old. Um, and uh, and all you need to do is you know pull up one of your classic biblical commentaries and go to the various passages and see how authorities have resolved it. You know, so um, uh, it's an old enterprise. I, I myself don't put a ton of stock in that, uh, and I'll tell you why in a second. Uh, but basically, you know, when you have divergent accounts like this, you, you can always think of a hypothetical scenario in which they could both be true at some different time. Mm. So it could it could simultaneously be true that Christ. Uh, uh, met uh, Peter and and uh, and James on the uh, uh, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and that Andrew, uh, I said James, uh, Peter and Andrew, and that Andrew went and grabbed him and said, "Hey, let's go see this Jesus guy." Both of those things could be true, having happened at different moments in the narrative, and one focuses on one story, one focuses on the other. Sure. Uh, for me personally, I don't waste a lot. I won't say waste. I don't spend a lot of time worrying about that kind of thing, because I understand that the biblical authors craft their narratives. They select data according to their own narrative purposes, because they each have a theological agenda. And I really think the underlying theological message is the place where I want to spend my time. I'm not as concerned about the the, the minutia of historical details. We do appreciate that. Thanks so much uh, for your phone call to EWTN's listener comment line. Uh, why don't we bring on one more? Hi, my name's Robert. And I've got a question for Dr. Anders, and it has to do with catechism paragraph 808 and comparing that catechism paragraph 963. 808, the church is the bride of Christ. He loved her and handed himself over for her. He has purified her by his blood and made her the fruitful mother of all of God's children. And then 963 pertaining to Mary who is the mother of the redeemed, and just trying to compare the two and how we can have two mothers, basically. Okay. Oh, yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. Well, Mary is an icon for the Church, always has been in, in traditional Catholic theology. Yep. She is, a, she is a, 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 a personification of this corporate reality called, called the Christian Church. She sums up in her own person— Everything that the church as a corporate body is meant to be. And that, that relationship between a, a singular archetype and then a corporate body is consistent across the Bible. This is not the only instance in which we find that. Um, uh, to take another example, think about when Rehoboam uh, offends a half of Israel, and so Israel splits off from the kingdom of Judah. Uh, what is the complaint made? What do the, what do the people cry? Um we have no share in David, nor in Jesse's son, right? Mm. Well, what they're talking about is the kingdom of Judah, but they 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 personify that within the singular individual of David. And David's not even at issue. It's really Rehoboam, who's his grandson, right? Um, or think about another David story, where David stands in for all of Israel in his battle with the Philistines against Goliath, all right? Um, think about uh, when, um, uh, this is an analogous issue, when Abraham says, well, no, when Moses says to God, you know, will you wipe out all of Israel? And, and God says, well, no, for your sake and the sake of the patriarchs, I want. You have the, the, the few standing in on behalf of the many. And the, the premier example of this kind of uh, topological relationship is the relationship between the Messiah and the people of Israel. So in the Servant Songs of Isaiah, we're told explicitly, um, 
in one passage that the servant is Israel, right? And yet, the New Testament also understands the servant to be the person of Jesus. So Jesus as the 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 intensification, the the singular um, uh, representation for this corporate body called Israel. He, in his own person, suffers in solidarity with and on behalf of the people of God. Okay. Appreciate that. Thanks for your call and all calls that have come in to the EWTN listener comment line. We're going to get to a few more of those in just a few moments. Here's a great email from Mark in Ireland. Tom and Dr. Anders, I am due to be ordained a priest in the coming weeks. Thanks be to God. My conundrum is as follows. I'll be inviting a number of family members who I know are not in a state of grace or who have fallen away from the church and her teachings. It's a good opportunity to give witness to them. However, I know that most of them will also approach me to receive the Eucharist when that time comes. Do I tell them gently before the day not to present themselves for communion and possibly risk upsetting them, driving them further away? Or do I leave it up to their conscience and go ahead and give them Jesus, even though I know that they'll be, quote, eating and drinking condemnation upon themselves, as St. Paul tells us. It's a very tricky situation. By the way, thanks so much for your fantastic show. It has helped me immensely as a future priest. You are in my prayers. And that's from Mark in Ireland. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate the question. So um, here's uh, here's something else you could do. Um Prior to serving communion, you could make a general announcement and say, "Just to be clear, yeah, if you're if you if you are a Catholic but you haven't been to sacramental confession and you know in X length of time, if you're not practicing, if you haven't been to mass, uh, then the church says you should not receive holy communion. So, if if that's you for your own sake, for the sake of your soul, don't come forward for communion or come forward for a blessing only." Uh, if you haven't been to confession and you haven't been making your, your, your mass obligation, your other Catholic obligations. And then you can, as it were, leave it to their consciences. Sure. Because that's the position you're going to be in when you're a priest, uh, day in and out anyway. Yeah, you're never yeah. going to be in a position to know uh, that every single person presenting themselves for communion has, has, has done everything that they're supposed to do. You have to trust that they're going to be obedient to their church and the conscience. Yep. And if they present themselves, you have to presume that they're worthy. The exception to that would be someone who is... Uh, manifestly, scandalously, publicly uh, uh, contravening some uh, moral teaching of the church, and so that their presentation for communion would constitute a scandal to the community. In that case, that's a different story, but that's not what we're talking about here. Mark, thanks for your email, and uh, congratulations on your upcoming ordination. That is fantastic. Here's an interesting um, hypothetical question. This is from Matt. What if the only two people left on earth are a Catholic priest and a woman of childbearing age. Never heard that one before. Um, okay, so if the only two people left on earth were a Catholic priest and a woman of childbearing age, then um, uh, that woman would have access to the sacraments. And, okay. and she would be able to receive uh, Holy Communion and go to confession, and that priest would be able to practice his ministry and bring Christ to somebody else, and they would both be able to come to holiness through that relationship. And then I guess that would be uh, that would be that would be lights out for the human race after that, wouldn't it? I I guess it would. That would. Yeah. 
by now, <laughs> as Fulton Sheen used to say at the end of his TV show, by now, I like to quote Fulton Sheen, and that is a that is a great all-purpose quote. By now, and, <laughs> love um, it. You know, given given the teaching of Catholic eschatology, uh-huh. uh, presumably, if there were only a Catholic priest and a and a and a and a uh, an unmarried woman left, they would be there to see Christ when he came back, right? That's true. So that's where we're going to leave that one. Matt, thanks so much uh, for your email. Appreciate that. In a moment, we're going to come on back, and uh, we'll bring you some more of these great phone calls from our EWTN listener comment line, and also uh, we'll uh, put in a few regular emails that we've received over the past couple of weeks as well. It is called a communion on this Friday afternoon with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN, the Global Catholic Network. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us. It's called a communion with Dr. David Anders here on this Friday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Uh, Enjoy the program today, but don't call because uh, we're bringing you a special recorded program featuring a whole bunch of questions that we've received during the uh, overnight and weekend hours on the EWTN listener comment line, including this one. I have a question about when Jesus was crucified and when he died, what the experience of the Eternal Father was. I know Protestants say that he poured the wrath out upon Jesus, but I don't think that's true. I want to know, was Jesus in the moment of his death? How could it be possible that he could ever be separated when he is always one and part of the Holy Trinity? I want to understand what it was that the Eternal Father experienced in that moment. Was he not aggrieved that his son was so brutalized? Please help me understand. Thank you. This is this is an this is an absolutely wonderful question, and I really appreciate it. And your objection to the standard Protestant notion—you hit the nail on the head. That is exactly right. Um, the idea that the that the Eternal Son and the Eternal Father could be alienated from one another is absurd and unthinkable. And in fact, it it implicates the one who holds this theory in something like. Uh, the the heretical doctrine of Nestorianism. You may remember from your church history class, Nestorius was a patriarch of Constantinople who objected to the title Mother of God with reference to the Blessed Virgin Mary. He said, well, we should call her the Mother of Christ, but we can't call her the Mother of God. And uh, the Orthodox objected that that would make Jesus into two people, that you had you would have a divine Jesus that could be eternal and, and that Mary couldn't be the mother of, and then you'd have a human Jesus that she could be the mother of. And so they're not really united. The divine and the human in Christ wouldn't be united in his person. He'd be more like, you know, two pieces of an Oreo cookie stuck together. And that's not how persons are. You know, person is a, is a, is a, is a singular subject. And the Catholic doctrine is that Jesus is a person. Um, that uh, that the person of the sec- the second person of the Trinity assumes a human nature to himself, and you've got one person there, and and anything you can predicate of one nature, you can predicate of the other. So if you know if Jesus uh, walks through the uh, uh, the marketplace and picks up a banana, you could say God picked up a banana, right? And in the same way, if uh, if Jesus is born of the Blessed Virgin Mary, you could say that God was born of the Blessed Virgin Mary, not not in the sense that the divinity came to exist as a result of her parturition. Uh, but the person really is divine and human all the way through. Uh, and so in this doctrine, the Protestant doctrine of the atonement, you have you have 
um, uh, you have the person of Jesus alienated from the Son. It seems to fall prey to the same kind of difficulty, that you're, you're saying something of Christ's humanity uh, that couldn't possibly pr- be predicated of his divinity. Uh, so, so it's very, very problematic. Um, now, the other problem with the theory um, is that it's radically unbiblical, and that the scriptures present the death of Christ in a certain way, and this idea of vicarious punishment, where God is wrathful and he has to pour his wrath out on a subject in order to, to satisfy it before he can forgive anybody, mm. that's just, there's nothing in scripture that says that. Rather, the Bible says that the death of Christ is a sacrifice of atonement. And go look in Leviticus chapter 5 and read about sacrifices of atonement. The, the, the worshiper brings a victim, not so God can pour out his wrath on it, but so the victim can offer it up in token of thanksgiving or reparation or satisfaction or whatever the purpose of the offering is. Uh, the idea is to give up something of value, which uh-huh. in doing that is intrinsically pleasing to the Father. So God's, God's state of mind is not one of wrath and hatred and alienation. It's one of, uh, of, of, uh, of being pleased, of being gratified by the self-offering of someone who gives himself freely. In, in this case, Christ gave himself up to ungodly men to be martyred, um, you know, in a way similar to, say, the way Martin Luther King Jr. went out uh, uh, preaching civil rights and, and social reform, knowing that it would expose him to danger, and he was assassinated for his pains, and, mm. and we regard that self-sacrifice as noble, uh, we could say that even more so about the death of Christ, his willingness to preach the kingdom of God um, and true righteousness in the face of opposition, knowing that it would lead to his death, and it did in fact lead to his death, we regard as a noble sacrifice. God also regarded it as a noble sacrifice, and Acts chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, respond that God rewarded Christ for his sacrifice by exalting him to the right hand and pouring out on the church the gift of the Holy Spirit. Appreciate your phone call to us here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Uh, We're doing a whole bunch of calls today from the EWTN listener comment line and a few emails uh, sprinkled in here and there, including this one from Gabriel in Puerto Rico. Hi, Dr. Anders. I'm currently three weeks away from getting married to my beautiful fiance. We have both been trying to grow closer to God. Uh, Considering the proximity of our marriage day, We've been trying to understand the sacrament of matrimony as well as the other sacraments. In doing so, while studying the sacrament of holy orders, we found the idea that, quote, an ontological change takes place in the essence of the person who receives the sacrament. So we were wondering, one, does an ontological change happen only with the sacrament of holy orders? And two, does the same change applied to the sacrament of matrimony. Thanks so much for everything that you do. Gabriel in Puerto Rico. Yeah, thanks, Gabriel. I really appreciate the question. Um, No, the sacrament of matrimony doesn't involve an ontological change the way ordination and baptism, I should add, do. Uh Um, And uh, because, so, you know, if let's say you marry and your wife dies, um, well, you're no longer married. Right, you're no longer married. You don't have the ontological status of eternally married person at that mm, moment. Yes, right? yes. Um, so the sacrament is it, it perjures only until the death of one or both of the spouses. Okay. Um, uh, but the fact that there's not an ontological change in the person does not mean that there is no supernatural grace attached to it. All sacraments bring a supernatural grace, grace that perfects you to to live that state of life in a worthy manner. So the grace of the sacrament of matrimony enables you to live the vocation of Christian marriage in a worthy manner. Uh, What all marriage has in common, whether sacramental or not, if it's valid, 
is it's the lifelong indissoluble union of a man and a woman for the sake of raising a family. Right? And that's true of a valid natural marriage as well. So say two Buddhists get married. It's uh-huh. not sacramental, but it is valid. Um, and it's good. It's a good thing. It's a good institution. Um, when Christians marry, there, there's a, you have that, but then you have a few other things as well. Their marriage also becomes a picture of the love of Christ for the church. And so it is essentially ordered to the eternal welfare of the spouses um, uh, and to the people of God, and it's an ecclesial state within the Catholic Church that, that serves the common good of the Christian faithful uh, and makes souls for heaven. And so that's, that's something that's above and beyond the mere natural good of natural marriage. And the grace of the sacrament comes in to help you do both of those things, but just to, to procreate kids in the natural way, but also to raise them within the domestic church for the sake of the kingdom of God and as a witness to the world. All right. And uh, Gabriel, uh, congratulations on your upcoming marriage. That is fantastic. Thanks for listening to us in Puerto Rico. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go to another call from our EWTN listener comment line. Hello, my name is Steve. I'm calling from St. Louis, Missouri. And I have a question for Dr. Anders uh, regarding whether it's morally uh, appropriate to attend a wedding of a friend who has had a civil divorce. He is not Catholic. Um, yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So um, when you have two non-Catholics that have married and then subsequently divorced, um, it is, it is uh, quite possible that their marriage was valid, even though it's not Catholic. It's very possible their marriage was valid. Um, it's also possible that their marriage was invalid for some reason, that it wouldn't have actually risen to the uh, to the standards of a Catholic, what Catholic Church considers a valid marriage. Because they're not Catholic, unfortunately, they don't have access to the Church's tribunal to adjudicate the question. Hmm. Now, if they were to become Catholic, the question would be adjudicated. The Church tribunal would look at it and determine if they needed an annulment or not, um, uh, you know, if there really was a valid marriage prior that, that they had dissolved, you know, in an illegitimate way, the Church would be able to determine that. But without submitting themselves to the Church's tribunal, you, you don't have any way to assess that question with mm-hmm. objective certainty. Uh, and so what I would do in this case is I would just follow the principle of charity and and say, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to leave the question of the validity of their marriage up to God. Uh, but I think that in, in intent, they're, they're attempting to realize something that is at least analogous to what the Catholic Church understands to be a valid marriage, and I'm going to, you know, just hold out the hope that God in some way unknown to me will get all this stuff worked out, and um, and so I wouldn't scruple about going to that particular wedding. It would be a little bit different if, you know, if they were Catholic people that were deliberately thumbing their nose at the Church's authority. Mm. Um, but in this case, I don't think you just, you just don't have a principled way of figuring out the truth of the thing. Very good. Hey, it's uh, called Communion here on EWTN. You may have forgotten, hopefully you didn't, but today is the Immaculate Conception. It is a holy day of obligation. So if you haven't been to Mass yet, be sure to make some time to attend Mass today because the Lord Jesus is waiting for you. Uh, very important. I know that I'm going to be there a little later on today. I'm sure David has been already. Here's a question now for ben, from Ben in Rapid City, South Dakota. Two questions, actually. Number one, can there be a valid or licit Eucharistic adoration if, instead of a monstrance with a consecrated host on the altar, there is a chalice of consecrated wine? And number two, 
I have never heard of the term beatific vision applied to looking with human eyes at Jesus while he was incarnate, or of the risen Lord after his resurrection and before his ascension, or of him in heaven after his ascension. However, would these viewings be considered a type of beatific vision? Yeah, thanks. Appreciate both questions. So um, the, the the church does not uh, uh, perform Eucharistic adoration before uh, a chalice as opposed to the monstrance. Doesn't right? do it. Doesn't do it. Okay. So that's not licit. Uh, the question of validity doesn't enter in, right? Because, uh, you know, a validly consecrated host is validly consecrated, and even if you do something inappropriate with it, it doesn't cease to be validly consecrated. Mm-hmm. So we don't use the term validity here. We would talk about liceity, and it's not licit to do what you suggest here. Okay. Uh, it's against the law of the church. Um, now, the, the Bittic vision refers very specifically to the intuitive knowledge of God in his essence, that is, the state of the blessed in heaven. So it is not a vision that takes place with material eyes. Uh, it is something that takes place within the soul. And so vision here is just an analogous word because we don't have a better one to describe this kind of knowing. Uh-huh. Um, and, of course, God can't be seen with, with any kind of material eyes or through any kind of material medium. We're, t- we're talking about a, a union of the mind and the will with God uh, in one's interior that, that, uh, by which we, we know all things in him, and, uh, and every one of our desires and aspirations is fully satisfied. So um, now, after the resurrection of the dead, that could be compatible with a, a, uh, a sensible knowledge of Christ's material body, um, but I think it would also be compatible with, say, um, a material knowledge of, um, of a caterpillar or a leaf. So imagine if you had in your soul an intuitive knowledge of God in his essence— Everything that you experienced, including the caterpillar and the leaf, uh-huh. would be elevated, would be illuminated by that knowledge. So you would, you, you know, uh, what is it, William Blake's um, famous poem about, you know, seeing eternity in the flower? I can't remember the poem. You know the one I'm talking about? I think so. You know, he, he, he has this sort of intimation, or, or Wordsworth's intimation of immortality. You know? uh-huh. yeah. He has this intimation of glory from even, you know, a, a casual glance at a, at a thing like a flower. Imagine if that were not just a poetic metaphor, but a metaphysical truth, right? Wow. So when you have the body, bodily resurrection, everything in reality mm-hmm. will be illuminated and illuminated, again, here's a metaphor. It'll be enhanced, it'll be understood, it'll be experienced in light of this perfect knowledge of God that you have in your interior. We do appreciate that. Call to communion here on EWTN. Another call from our EWTN listener comment line now. Hi, good afternoon. My name is Rolando. I'm calling from Great Lake Naval Base. My question is, can you enlighten me the difference between paradise and heaven? No. Yeah, thank you. So I think the question must reference uh, Christ's word to St. Dismas, today you will be with me in paradise. Um, so it, uh, it, it, would have, it would refer to the limbus of the fathers. Paradise would refer to the limbus of the fathers, that place of natural happiness uh, where the souls of the righteous went before the ascension of Christ, not to the beatific vision after the ascension of Christ. Okay. Appreciate that. Here's a question now from uh, Victoria. She says, my mom has a question. She wants to know where in the temple was Jesus when he was lost there for three days? Where in the world was Jesus when he was lost in the temple for three days? This is not Carmen San Diego. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, he wasn't lost to himself. 
he knew exactly where he was. Sure did. Right. Um, and uh, he was, well, all we know from the text is that he was debating with the scholars and the, and the scribes. I don't know where in the temple that took place. I don't think the text tells us. Um, so all we, we, what, what's important is what he was doing there. Um, and I found that quote from William Blake. Oh, to good. see a world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wildflower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. Ooh. It's a beautiful line of poetry. Yeah. Right. That's what I was thinking of earlier. Beautiful. Show. All right. And I hope, that, hope that's helpful for you, Victoria, and for your mom as well. Here's an email now from Ed in Lindale, Texas. Dr. Anders, I understand some 23 Eastern Rite churches and the Western Rite are in full communion under the papacy. Some Eastern churches are not in this communion, even though their beliefs and practices are very similar. For convenience, I'll refer to them collectively as orthodoxy. Uh, Number one, what would be the practical impact on the average man or woman if orthodoxy entered into full communion with all these other churches under the papacy? In other words, how would their Christian life be any different if they went to sleep out of communion and woke up the next day in communion? And then number two, what are the most significant barriers besides the papacy preventing the Orthodox from entering into full communion? I know these questions are simplistic, but I'd appreciate your high-level assessment. Sincerely, Ed in Lindale, Texas. Right. Thank you. I appreciate the question. So uh, I think there could be some practical, immediate practical, practical, sensible benefits to a lot of people. Um, you remember that Pope Francis took a trip, an apostolic trip to Greece within the last couple of years. Yes, yes. And he got a good reception, a warm reception, but there were some, I hesitate to use this word because it it seems to be more specifically located to America, but let's call them fundamentalists, right? There were some sort of hardliners, uh, orthodox hardliners, priests and and monks in in Greece that came out to greet the Pope and to curse him and to call him the Antichrist and to say all kinds of nasty things to him, right? Wow. and uh, I have a, a friend of a friend of mine uh, is a, is an Orthodox priest in Albania, and he once told my our mutual friend, our, our in-between friend, that he said, you know, a lot of my parishioners don't know why they hate the papacy so much. They just do. Right? I mean, in other words, it's, it's, it's been so culturally ingrained in them. Yeah. That 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 the Pope is a terrible guy. That uh-huh. it's just it's kind of like Protestant fundamentalists who grew up being taught that they should hate Catholicism, and they don't even know why. They just know I'm supposed to hate Catholicism. Mm. So, right off the bat, if we healed the the schism, if we healed the breach between Orthodox and Catholicism, um, then the faithful would at least be taught that that kind of animus uh, is no longer appropriate. Right. That that right off the bat, I think, would be a tremendous benefit. Yeah. Um, you know the. Um, uh, the, uh, the the East has always recognized that in antiquity, um, the Pope was the uh, the final court of appeal. Now there are disputes about the extent of his jurisdiction and how it operates, and that's that's basically the grounds for the separation. Uh-huh. But they never denied that the Pope had a primacy and that he that his primacy could serve as a final court of appeal when uh, you know over ecclesiastical disputes. Well, Orthodoxy has been deprived of that final court of appeal for a thousand years, right? And so that would be a tremendous practical benefit. Um, you know, in other, wor- in other terms, I think that the Pope would be extremely loath to exercise his universal jurisdiction. And, and the, the pattern with the, uh, with the Eastern Rite Catholic Churches, I think, is telling. Like, there, there, there are questions about, well, how much intervention 
could or should or would the Pope make under certain circumstances that'll never be answered because he's never going to do it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a there's a there's a tremendous amount of autonomy and respect that's afforded to these to these churches for historic reasons. And so I think the Pope would, in many respects, leave well enough alone. Yeah. Ed, thanks so much for your fascinating uh, question there. Appreciate that. I think we have time for one more of those EWTN listener comment line calls. Angelica, and I'm calling from Vancouver. I have a relative who is a Catholic, but is not a practicing Catholic, and is going to marry someone else who has also fallen away from the Catholic Church, but so they, so in short, the wedding is non-Catholic wedding, and we have been asked to be their principal sponsors um, in this non-Catholic wedding. So what does the Catholic Church say about this? If the Catholic Church says, no, you cannot, um, I don't know if there's any chance, if we don't attend, if there's any chance for us to help bring back this couple to the Catholic Church, um, because um, if we say no, there's going to be a strained relationship. Okay. Yeah, thanks. So I don't know what is entailed in being a sponsor in a wedding. I, I don't know what that means. Um, uh, you know, you, you're correct that this is, in Catholic canon law, this is going to be an invalid marriage. Um, and uh, uh, they no longer recognize the authority of the Catholic Church, uh-huh. right? So the question of whether or not the Catholic Church regards it as valid or invalid is of no consequence to them. Um, it does cause a problem for your conscience. You, you can, you know, you can always affirm your love for the individuals and even for the couple and also plead the, the, uh, uh, the crisis of conscience, Right. You know, this this presents a question of conscience for me and I, I want to support you and love you and I I wish you well. Um, but I have a question of conscience and here's why, yeah, you know, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, the, there are a lot of social movements in the world today where people of diverse ideological uh, tribes insist that others concede their use of language. You know, you have to call me by this pronoun or you must refer to me in this way. And. As Catholics, we're not doing that. We don't say you have to believe what Catholics believe. You have to use our language. We don't say that. But but it seems a, pr- a pretty small concession to say, would you at least grant me the right to my own use of my own language? Would you even would you grant me a right over my own conscience? Yeah. Are you even go, are you going to impose so much your belief system on me that you insist that in order to be your friend, I have to see the world exactly the way you see it? Can't we, can we disagree and still love one another? Wow. Great answer to a, a fascinating question there. Call to communion here on EWTN. This one is from Silas. Dr. Anders, I know that infallible teachings of the church cannot contain falsehood. However, here's my question. Is it ever legitimate for any person to judge or condemn popes for teaching heresy in their non-infallible magisterium, like in encyclicals or exhortations, etc.? Also, is it even possible for a pope to be in error to the degree of heresy in his non-infallible magisterium, even though lesser errors, not damaging to the soul, could be taught? What do the councils of the church have to say about all this? Thanks, Silas. Yeah, okay, thanks. So it's clearly the case that, that popes in the exercise of their ordinary magisterium can be in error. That, that's, that's obviously true. It's part, the church teaches that, that they can be in error. Yeah. Okay. And when the fathers of the First Vatican Council formulated the dogma of papal infallibility, and it was ratified by the council and the pope, they did so with full awareness that there had 
there were had been popes in history that had taught erroneous things. So Honorius the first comes to mind. He was the pope that uh, that if he didn't teach, he at least gave a lot of cover to the monothelite heresy. Um, John the twenty second in the fourteenth century. Uh, positively taught the doctrine of soul sleep as opposed to the doctrine of the beatific vision of the saints. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, and he was quite vociferous about it, in fact. Um, and uh, in, in these and other instances, there were theological authorities in their own day that, 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 get, that cried foul, right? So the whole theological faculty of the University of Paris, for example, objected to John the Twenty Second's idiosyncratic theology, and they got in a big fight about it. Wow. Um, so it's uh, uh, Cardinal Newman, who himself believed in the dogma of papal infallibility, thought that the promulgation of the dogma was a bad idea. So he didn't he doesn't didn't disagree on the facts. He disagreed on the prudence of the thing, ah. and he talked about it. So he was what you call an inopportunist who would <laughs> he thought it was inopportune to define the dogma of papal infallibility, mm. and he and he criticized the pope about it, right? Okay, and to some people more than others. So what the church says about this kind of thing is that the the faithful have a right and sometimes a duty to manifest their opinions on mm. matters of church policy and the articulation of doctrine even, um, but they have to do so in a way that doesn't cause scandal um, and, and respects uh, the positions of the various parties involved in the in the controversy. So, so um, you know, say for example, somebody on the church's well, let's say okay, the International Theological Commission, for example, uh-huh. would be much better suited, and better placed to to make an intervention of this sort than, say, a Catholic radio host. Uh, well, yeah, <laughs> you know, and um, and uh, so you know, this isn't it isn't a democracy where everybody's opinion counts the same. Like there, there really are people who are competent to make these kind of judgments. Obviously, the bishops of the church are in a supreme position to to make these kinds of interventions. Um, and yet, they all have to be done with an awareness of our our obligation to the religious submission of mind and will to the Pope and his ordinary magisterium, which falls short of the act of faith, but still concedes to the Pope a tremendous amount of authority and dignity as the Vicar of Christ. Silas, thanks so much for your email. Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday here on EWTN. We're always glad to get your questions, whether it's from emails or live phone calls or calls like we were playing today, the uh, from calls from the listener comment line, uh, also questions from social media. This is what this program is all about, to get your questions answered. Check out the podcast anytime by going to EWTN.com slash radio and look for the word podcast. On behalf of our producer, Charles Beery, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Hey, if you're a Catholic, you better get to Mass today. Holy Day of Obligation. We'll see you next time here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Have a wonderful weekend. God bless.